following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 26th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and make your way to the book of Galatians. Surprise, surprise, Galatians chapter 6. Um, I pray that the book of Galatians and our time in it has been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. Uh, my prayer has been, and it continues to be, that God would use the time that we've had in this book together uh, to strengthen our grasp and our delight uh, in the true gospel, uh, that he would begin as we process this book and work it out together over the coming weeks and months. It would be a catalyst for the continued growth of this gospel culture that Paul's been talking about. That's, that's been my hope, it's been my prayer, um, and I look forward to seeing and hearing more in the weeks and months to come of what God has done and continues to do in your heart and through your life, through the time that we've spent in this book. But this week we come to the end. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. So as we prepare to look at how Paul brings this thing to a close, uh, let's pray together uh, for God's illumination and for God's guidance, for the power of God the Holy Spirit to help us to rightly understand what Paul is saying to us here this morning. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you again as we do every single week that we have the privilege to gather for this amazing opportunity. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that you have shown us and even waking us up this morning and in drawing us together here by your spirit. Some even don't know, some here don't even know why they're here. They just know that they needed to come but someone asked them and they said yes. And so we thank you for bringing us here together and we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do by your Holy Spirit together with your word and that you would help us to see your glory and your beauty in the person and work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we, may we see for the first time or the first time in a long time the real Jesus. May we treasure for the first time or the first time in a long time the real gospel and your true grace for us. And we ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this as we get going. What do you believe the greatest threat to the gospel is in Richmond, Virginia in 2017? What do you think the greatest hindrance is to the gospel culture being produced and cultivated in our local church. This same gospel culture that Paul's been talking about here in this book. What do you think the greatest hindrance to that being a reality for us is? I'll tell you this. It's not what some people call the new atheism. It's not what the news keeps talking about with radical Islam. It's not New Age spirituality. It's not a liberal or a conservative government. The greatest threat to the ongoing work of the gospel in this city and in this church is the teaching of and the belief in a pseudo-gospel, an empty gospel, which Paul has said all along ultimately is no gospel at all. A message that calls people to a pseudo-Jesus and a pseudo-grace that has no power to actually save, no power to heal, no power to comfort. What threatens Richmond, Virginia the most today is not her violence, the exploitation, the lack of education, as deplorable as all of those things are. What threatens the joy of Richmond, Virginia today is a message about a pseudo-Jesus 
a pseudo-gospel, and a pseudo-grace. As I was preparing for this morning and trying to come up with words to communicate this reality and this sentiment, my wife was actually reading to me an excerpt from a book that she was reading at the time, did not know what was going on in my brain, did not know what that she was reading and how it worked in my head, but the author of the book, The Broken Way, summed up the sentiment, I think, very well. In the book, she said, is there really a grace that can bury the fear that your faith isn't big enough and your faults are too many? There's all kinds of pseudo-gospels and pseudo-messages, but is there really one? Is there really a grace that can bury the fear that your faith isn't big enough and your faults are too many? Is there really a grace that washes your dirty wounds and wounds the devil's lies? Is there really a grace that embraces you before you prove anything and after you've done everything wrong? Is there really a grace that holds you when everything is breaking down and falling apart and whispers that everything is somehow breaking free and falling together? What if we could feel that there was a grace that holds us together and calls us beloved and says that we belong and that no brokenness ever has the power to break us away from being safe? What if we experience the miracle of grace that can touch and heal all wounds? Is there really such a grace as this? The good news that Paul has been trying to help us to see over and over and over again is that there is. Spurgeon says it so well. In our day and in our time, he said, hearts are broken in 10,000 ways. Every single person has come into this room with their heart suffering some form of hurt and brokenness. Spurgeon says it can happen in 10,000 ways because we live in a heartbreaking world. And yet, Christ, the real Jesus, Christ and Christ alone is the only one capable and good enough at healing all manner of heartbreaks. Friends, throughout the letter that Paul has written to the churches, he has been pleading with us to see and to let go of all the forms and strains of pseudo-Christianity, of pseudo-gospels, and of pseudo-Jesuses that our heart has held onto and to cling for the first time or the first time in a long time to the real Jesus. For our hearts to be steadied by the true gospel. So one last time before he sends the letter away, Paul is going to make one more plea to the churches. He's gonna help us see here at the very end just what the difference is between the true gospel and a pseudo-gospel. The difference between true Christianity and false Christianity and what each produces in the lives of people that cling to them. One more time, Paul wants to help us see. So verse 11, let's look at how he ends this letter. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, I want you to understand something because I'm going to give you the context here because I want you to catch this, all right? Paul has probably been dictating. Now he's taking the quill himself and he's going to write. And if you get an email from someone today or a text from someone today and all the words are in uppercase capital letters, what are they trying to tell you? 
Man, I'm trying to emphasize something and I'm yelling at you. Like, I need you to hear what I'm saying. Paul has hit the caps lock on the letter. If he was typing this thing, that's what he's done. He's hit caps lock. Everything we're about to read, he's emphasizing and yelling that you might hear it. And so we do our, our best effort every week to try to conform the sermon to the tone of the letter, but I'm not going to scream at you the entire time. I'll yell at you part of the time, but not the whole time. One more time, Paul's going to try one more way to help you see the difference between the true gospel and the false gospel and what they produce. He wants you to see it. So look down at verse 12. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So here's how he's going to start. I want to help you see one more time what the heart is behind these pseudo gospels that are being told to you, that are being taught to you, that you're starting to believe. I want you to see one more time just what the fruit looks like that these gospels produce in the lives of people that will cling to them, all right? So here it is. What happens when someone holds fast to these empty gospels? First thing Paul wants us to see again is that these empty gospels produce a people that are all about appearances. Do you see what he says? These false teachers who are bringing this this message to you, they want to make a good showing. Here's what they're doing. Here's why they're doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying. They want to make a good showing to others. They want to look a certain way in the eyes of others. They want to boast in your flesh. Empty gospels produce in the lives of people that cling to them an an insatiable desire and need to show off. You have to show off to others. Empty gospels are always built around forming some level of outward impression. It's all about gathering the right kind of trophies to put up on the mantle. It's all about getting it all looking just right and just perfect. So when people come over and they walk into the house and they see the shelf, they see all the glory and all the trophies. Empty gospels are built on the need to make outward impressions. How big is our church? How distinct is our group as opposed to others? This again is that hollow swagger that Paul's been talking about for the last few weeks. You see, the reality of it is the the less and less that you and I experience the, the enthralling love and mercy of the real Jesus, the less and less that our time is spent with the real Jesus, the less and less that our hearts are being anchored by the real gospel and we're looking to some empty form of the gospel and some pseudo Jesus, you realize the more time we spend with a pseudo Jesus and a fake Jesus, the more posturing we're going to need to do with other people. We're going to need to work harder to make ourselves look a certain way in the eyes of other people. Paul's saying these empty gospels, they they produce a people with the insatiable need to show off. 
These false teachers, the heart behind what they're doing, the heart behind what they're saying was not the joyful obedience to God's word of his people. They weren't trying to cultivate that ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view in the church. They were hoping to go back to Jerusalem with big numbers. They wanted to head back to Jerusalem and talk about all that they were to accomplish in the region of Galatia, all the mistakes that Paul was making and how they made all these new converts because they wanted to be seen a certain way. It's all about appearance. But not just that, Paul wants to make very clear. These pseudo-gospels, they produce a people who are not just first and foremost about appearance, but they're about the acceptance of the world around them as well. Verse 12, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And then look what he says. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Another way of saying that is that they were afraid of what others would think about them and possibly do to them for following Jesus. They were bent on looking a particular way so that they could garner the praise of the people around them and at the same time avoid the possible persecution or rejection from the world around them for what they believed. And to do that, do you know what they had to do? They had to change the rules. They changed the message of the gospel. You see, circumcision in and of itself, if you were with us when we talked about this earlier on in the letter when Paul dealt with it, circumcision in and of itself was never the problem. Paul's not against circumcision in and of itself. The problem that Paul was dealing with here is this message that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised if you were a Gentile. You see, out of a desire for the praise of men and the fear of persecution, these false teachers had come in and they changed the gospel. And here's the problem with these false gospels. If you're not being increasingly delighted by the real Jesus, if you're not being increasingly anchored by his grace, there is absolutely no way you will undergo any persecution or possible rejection for being associated with him. See, Paul is trying to help draw this distinction one more time. Empty gospels produce people who were all about appearance and acceptance by the world. Empty gospels are teaching, they're messages that focus primarily on external standards. They deal with external superficialities. Friends, this is what will ultimately destroy the city we live in. This is ultimately what the true gospel is up against here in Richmond. Paul has helped us see over and over and over again that the true gospel is utterly distinct, utterly different than these empty gospels that get peddled around. These empty gospels want to focus on outward forms and outward appearances and and superficialities that cause us to look a particular way to a watching world so that we can get their praise and get their acceptance. And Paul has been telling us over and over again, the true gospel is altogether different. It's not about external appearances and superficialities. It's transformation and change that comes from the inside out. It's about an entirely new heart that produces entirely new affections, that leads to entirely new motivations and ways of living. It doesn't work from the outside in, it works from the inside out. But Paul's gonna add one more stinging 
rebuke of these empty gospels and the culture that they produce. Verse 13, Paul says, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. These empty gospels that produce people who have this insatiable need to appear a certain way to a watching world and avoid the rejection of the world around them ultimately produce people who are hypocrites. Paul's saying these men who are being such sticklers about the law, they're not even themselves being obedient to the fullness of the law. If they were to allow their lives to be judged by the microscopic view of the law, they themselves would have to own the fact that they're imperfect, that they're sinners, that they need someone to stand in their place for their sin. No, rather, they they build these rules for others and try to get them to submit to those laws that they have found impossible for themselves to submit to. It's been that way all along. It's no different now. Jesus dealt with it in his ministry. You might remember Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said, scribes and Pharisees, here's what they do. This is Jesus. They preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they're not willing to move them with a finger. And we just spent weeks talking about the gospel culture, the real culture produced by the true gospel and this ministry of burden bearing that that we have the privilege of being a part of. Pseudo gospels produce a people that will be willing to lay burdens on other people's shoulders and unwilling to move them with their own finger. Jesus said these guys, they do all of their deeds for one reason and that's to be seen by others. So is it any surprise when Paul catches wind that these empty gospels, this pseudo gospel and this message of a false grace is being taught to the church and people are beginning to believe it, is it any surprise that Paul won't just let it go? Is it any surprise that Paul just wouldn't say, well, I hope someone fixes it one day. I I don't know what else you do. No, Paul recognized that these pseudo gospels produce people that seek their own glory from their own success, that ultimately never practice what they preach, and that are unwilling to endure rejection or persecution for the cause of Christ. Worst of all, Paul has said over and over through the letter, and he's saying again here at the end, by trusting in our own work and in our own obedience to our own established law, rather than God's grace through the cross, we're actually denying the free grace of God through Christ. So Paul would not let it go. Friends, what was threatening the churches in Galatia that caused Paul to write this letter? It's the same thing we deal with in 2017 in Richmond. It's the same thing the church has been dealing with ever since it was established, the preaching of the gospel. In fact, over a hundred years ago, a German named H. Reinhold Niebuhr was writing about the spread of the gospel in America in his book, The Kingdom of God in America. And here's how he summed up what I'm calling this threat. He said, it's the message of a God without wrath who brought people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And do you know what pseudo-gospels like that actually begin to produce and establish? They produce communities and churches that look really good on the outside. That tick all the buttons of what people want to hear. 
They're involved in all the right things. They say all the right things. They look the right way for the time in which they're in. But do you know what's happening? They're simply recycling ancient heresies. It can have a a liberal side. It can have a conservative side. It's the same thing. When you walk into a church community or you walk into a faith family like this and you find everywhere you step there's a hidden landmine because there's some unwritten rule of what you can do or can't do or can say or can't say, should wear or shouldn't wear, and you're blowing up every time you take a step, it's the same thing. Liberal or conservative, a pseudo gospel is an empty gospel. And a religion that looks good on the outside, it might win the approval of men. It might win the praise of men. It might keep them from actually rejecting you in some way, but it can never change the heart. It can never produce the salvation that it promises. So Paul wants to make clear one more time. The real gospel produces something utterly different. Look down at verse 14. Paul is building his comparison here. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Paul wants us to see a few things about what the real gospel does in the hearts of people who cling to it with all that they are. The real gospel shifts our heart from boasting in ourselves and it leads us to boast in someone and something else entirely. See, the cross was a very strange thing for people in Paul's day to boast in. Crucifixion, death by crucifixion, was not something that you would have talked about in polite conversation in Paul's day, all right? It was a form of shameful, humiliating, nationalistic execution. The Romans would crucify people for a variety of reasons, but one of the chief reasons why they would do it was to show how much better they were than other people. And it was one of the most shameful and embarrassing ways for someone to die. So for Paul to say that this thing that isn't even appropriate to talk about in polite conversation is meant to be the thing that he is going to boast about out in the streets to a listening world seemed utterly odd in his day. And every preacher since the time of Paul has tried to figure out how to take crucifixion and what it meant back then and put it into what it would mean in their current day and time. Everyone's done it. We've talked about the electric chair. We've talked about all kinds of things. It was not until later, earlier this week, when I came across a a translation of the Bible that I'd never read before. It's actually a paraphrase of the Bible. It's called the Cotton Patch Gospel. Its translation of Galatians chapter 6 right here took what Paul was talking about and put it into a contemporary way like I'd never heard before. Their translation said this, God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ? Has there been in the history of even our own city a more shameful, embarrassing display of nationalistic pride and sin than in lynchings that have occurred in the South? This translation says, God forbid that I should ever 
take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it would have felt like. Paul could have said anything. He said, I, far be it that I take pride except in anything but Jesus and just said Jesus. He could have said Jesus' incarnation. He could have said in Jesus' life lived in his place. He could have said in Jesus' resurrection. He could have said in Jesus' ascension. But that's not what he said. He said, far be it for me to boast in anything but the lowest moment. Why? That which wasn't even speakable in polite conversation. Why? Philip Ryken has captured it better than I have read many people capture it. He said the cross is the only thing to boast about because it means that God loves us enough to die for us. That he saved us through the death of his own dear son. It means that we've been redeemed. That Jesus has paid the whole price for our salvation. The cross means that we have the forgiveness of our sins, that Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. It means that we're justified, that now God accepts us as righteous in his sight. His wrath has been turned away, and now we stand innocent before him. Riken said there are only two religious options. You can glory in yourself, or you can glory in the cross. To glory in the cross is to stop trusting in your own merit, your own church attendance, your own worship style, your own devotional habit, your own social involvement, your own theological orthodoxy, the number of converts in your church, and to start trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Paul said, I'll never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ because In this cross, there is transforming power for all who cling to it. That's what he says in verse 14 in the second part. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When Paul says the world there, he's not talking about all the people around him that are walking on the face of the earth. He's talking about the the system of belief and affection and desire and motivation that animate a broken world that we live in. What Paul is saying is that when I was crucified with Christ, Galatians chapter two, when by the grace of God through faith in Christ, I was crucified with Jesus on the cross. Paul said that action in the past has current and ongoing implications now for the way that I live. When I was crucified with him, all of the desires, all of the affections, all of the intentions of the system of the world that we lived in were crucified to me, and I was crucified to it. Paul said, when I was crucified with Christ, the pattern of desire and living of a broken world became dead to me, and I became dead to it. It changed. The pattern, the capacity, the affection, the motivation, the desire for the way that I live now is utterly different because of that cross. What the world holds out for me as a source of identity, as a source of protection, as a source of assurance, as a source of hope, I died to it through the gospel. And guess what? It died to me too. 
Because a world that's bent on these things over here, a world that's bent on defining itself by these standards and these affections and these pursuits, it looks at someone like Paul or like you and I who are following Christ and living our life clinging to the gospel and says, that's a throwaway life. You're wasting it. Paul told the same thing to the church in in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, we have become and now are. Because of our confidence in the gospel and our identification with Christ, we have become and we now are the refuse of the world, the off-scouring of all things. Let me try to make it as practical as I can. What this means is that as we are increasingly anchored by the real gospel, steadied by the real gospel, pursuing lives of ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view to the glory of God, we are never going to be the cool kids in the world's eyes. Do you get that? It doesn't matter what we sing, how I dress, if we quit meeting in a gymnasium, how great the website is, it doesn't matter. When the cross becomes our only boast and our hearts are steadied and anchored by the truth of God's grace to us in his son, and we wake up each day trying to live lives of ordinary faithfulness that he might be glorified in our everyday reality, we're never going to be the cool kids. These empty gospels, they need the praise of the world around them like fuel. They they have to posture because they're not anchored by the real Jesus. When we're anchored by the real Jesus, we have no reason to envy the rest of the world around us. We have him. We have everything that we need. Paul reminds those who, like him, would find their only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that there are some consequences. He doesn't want the church to end this letter, to to quit thinking and and be surprised by a reality that they're gonna face in the world. Verse 17, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the, the marks of Jesus. Quite literally, on Paul's body were physical scars and physical marks of what it meant for him to be associated with the real Jesus. He had been scourged, beaten, whipped, stoned, hung by chains. All of those marks on his body. I don't know how many were always visible. I have no idea what it actually looked like, but to a watching world, that didn't understand them and saw them as disgraceful. All they were to them was Paul throwing his life away. Paul, you're so smart. Paul, you're so capable. Paul, you can do so much or do anything. Why are you wasting it following this Jesus? You don't have to go through these things, Paul. Paul had every opportunity that the false teachers in Galatia had to change the message of the gospel and to avoid such rejection and persecution. But Paul knew that the physical marks on his body that a watching world misunderstood and even could have despised were precious in the eyes of God and understood 
by all who are clinging to the same hope. Every person in the church that saw a physical mark on Paul's body knew there was a story behind it. Knew that it was another story of what faithful living in a broken world actually meant. See, Paul wants to remind the church lest they become surprised. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have some scars. And they may not occur on your body, but they will occur in your heart. So be ready. Don't be surprised. Friends, one writer said, we boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by looking through the gospel at the cross of Jesus and there he is, nailed there, hanging there, suffering and dying for you and me. And we see him there and we begin to think, I'm glad to be here. At the foot of his cross, I'm glad to be here because only here do I stop posing. Only here am I free from my false appearances Only here do I rest in his love for out-of-control, self-centered me. Only here is the real me loved and forgiven. Not the better me whose image I project, but the real me that's worse than anyone knows. Only here does the all-holy God above prove how he can love someone just like me. Only there is there truly a grace big enough for sinners like you and I. We boast in the cross when we trust it, when we treasure it, when we cling to it, when we hold fast to it when others mock it, when we proclaim it when we face rejection. The real real gospel, the real Jesus, the real cross, it changes everything. No longer do we have to believe the lie that circumcision or uncircumcision count for anything. No longer do we have to believe the lie that it's all the little laws, all the little rules, all the little rituals that we have to obey, that we have to keep track of, that we have to improve upon in order to be saved. No longer do we have to believe that those things ultimately count for anything because in the real gospel, what matters is not those things, but being a new creation. What matters most, Paul says, is whether or not you're a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he said, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. Friends, Paul has reminded us over and over and over again and he's not gonna go out quietly without reminding us one more time. The real gospel is not about coming up with a system or a pattern or a structure for taking the old you and making it better. The gospel is not about making a better version of the old you, figuring out how to clean you up, how to shine you up, how to fill in the cracks and put you on display for a watching world to go, wow. The real gospel is about making you an entirely new creation, not just a better version of your old self. So Paul says, as for all, 
who would walk by this rule, who would walk by the confidence of this gospel, who would walk by the truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by all who would walk by the rule of letting the cross be your only true boast, peace and mercy be upon you. Now let me try to, let me try to sum it up here. Paul tries to put a PS on his letter and just makes it longer. I'm going to try to put a PS on the sermon and just make it longer. Let me try to sum it up for you and tie together everything that he said and paint the picture. Pseudo-gospels produce a people with an insatiable desire for self-exaltation, a desire to make a good show in the eyes of others, an insatiable craving for people's praise. Pseudo-gospels produce a people who fear persecution and rejection more than they cherish the glories of the cross. Pseudo-gospels produce a people where outward forms of obedience and conformity become the essence of religious life. Pseudo-gospels produce a people like Jesus talked about who become masters at cleaning up and shining and painting and profiling the exterior of the vase while altogether ignoring the cleanliness of the inside. Empty gospels ultimately remove for people the stumbling block of the cross and they do it by ignoring or despising its implications. I love how John Piper says it. These empty gospels that I'm talking about, they have to avoid the cross because the splinters of the old rugged cross always pop the balloon of self-exaltation. The real gospel, the real Jesus, and real grace produces a people who no longer have to live for the praise of the world around them, who no longer wake up as people pleasers, but yet go through their life pursuing ordinary faithfulness, expecting some rejection and some pushback from a broken world that crucified their Savior. The real gospel produces a people who together with Paul can say that for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness. I'm content with insult. I'm content with hardship. I'm content with persecution. I'm content with rejection and calamity. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The real gospel produces a people who recognize and cherish that the inner man is the essence of new creation and our glory and only boast is in the cross. The cross that we treasure above all things. The cross that tells us that the cares of this world no longer have to crush us. Why? Because it's in the gospel and it's on the cross that God gives us an entirely new perspective to see the life that we live here and now. An entirely new perspective on who we are and where we are and whose we are. It's this cross that puts to death all of the things the world holds out to us that no longer have to persuade us anymore because it's this real gospel that gives us new affections. 
I love how one commentator said, I wish I had written down who it was. I don't really remember. But he said, in this real gospel, so to speak, a people are produced who get to live as though this world has nothing for them, and yet Christ is everything to them. So Paul finally feels like he's said all that he can say. There's not another way that he can come at it. And so he ends his letter as he began. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Paul began the letter with grace. He's constantly brought us back to being called by grace. He's constantly called us back to the necessity of believing in the gospel of grace. Paul has talked throughout this whole letter about the grace of Jesus, God's unmerited favor towards sinners like you and I. So now you and I get to respond together to the unmerited favor towards us that God has shown us in his son. And we're going to respond together by receiving communion remembering the body of Jesus broken in the place for our sins, the real Jesus who died in our place for our sins, whose body was broken and blood was shed so that by the grace of God through faith in him, you and I could experience real grace. The grace that can heal, the grace that can comfort, the grace that can save. And as we prepare to respond this morning, Let me read one more thing to you. Thinking back to that excerpt that I read at the beginning, wondering if there was such a grace available. The cross, it's for us today. The cross is for people who have ruined their lives and done everything wrong. The cross is for people with shame and regret who deeply fear that their lives are over. The cross is for people who are deeply sad, but yet their hearts are still beating. But if they're honest, that's not even what they want anymore. The cross is for people who don't know by now what to expect of themselves anymore and don't know any longer what they're capable of. What that means is that the cross is for you The cross is for me. The cross is for all of us because the man on the cross is the only true friend of sinners. He is the full and final payment for all of our sin. From the cross, he says to you and I, all who are heavy laden and burdened, all who have tried pseudo-gospels and pseudo-graces that can't save, that can't forgive, that can't heal, that can't cleanse, that can't do what they promise, but only leave us more burdened with things that we think we're supposed to do. He says from the cross, come to me. Come to me. And I'll give you life. I'll give you rest. You can come as you are, with your guilt, with your shame, with your pain, with your fear, with all of the problems you have yet to figure out solutions to, you can come to him and find real grace and real forgiveness.
Friends, there is such a grace as this. And it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to give you a couple of minutes. And in those couple of minutes, we're going to allow you to deal with God and let him deal with you. And then together, we're going to respond and we're going to remember his sacrifice in our place for our sin as we take communion. We're going to sing. We're going to make much of him with our mouths, with our lives, make a joyful noise to him, boasting in him. And then we're going to be sent out from here by him to be his people in this city. So let me pray, and then we'll respond. Father, we need the miracle work of your Holy Spirit this morning to rescue our hearts from all of the the pseudo-messages, the twisted gospels, the the empty gospels that that we've clung to over the days and over the years, all all the things that can't really save but only lay heavier burdens onto our shoulders, the things that can't heal, the things that can't cleanse, things that leave us feeling like we're too far gone. God, help us this morning to see, to treasure, to cherish your true grace through your real Son. Lord, we want to be people of the gospel. Lord, let the boast of our hearts be in the cross of your Son by which we were crucified, by which our old man was put to death, and through which you have given us new life. Lord, we ask these things for his name's sake and his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.